Hello all and welcome to our podcast. We are the Kinotomic, a movie podcast that bridges the cinema nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the explosive modernity of contemporary cinema. I am your host Danny, and with me, as usual, is my host Nick. Good afternoon. The premise of our show is very simple. Each week we have carefully picked two films which we think have things in common. We should then discuss them to find what their common traits are. One is my suggestion based on my particular area of expertise, Golden Age of Hollywood, as well as the pre-code era. And the other is chosen by my co-hosts, which is from their speciality. So that would be uh, contemporary cinema, um, which I'm saying is anything post-1970s um, through to the current blockbuster era that we're living in the only rule is both picks of the week have to be first time viewing for the other person so yeah this this week um we are kind of changing up a little bit from what we talked about last week with buster geaton and jackass so um this week is more of a noir uh crime uh theme going on today so um, we'll be talking about uh, 2006's Miami Vice, uh, directed by Michael Mann, and um, Angels with Dirty Faces, uh, directed by Michael Curtiz, and that came out in 19... 1938. Um, so what we'll do is we'll talk about Miami Vice first, as this is my suggestion. Uh, it's also one of my favourite films, a film that I've had to defend quite... Um, quite i've had to defend it a lot put it that way a lot a lot of people i know don't don't particularly like the film um and i've had to defend it so i'm i'm really interested to know what danny thinks um of on her first first viewing of of miami vice okay are you ready well i i am i am i am ready okay, okay. i have i have a i have a massive defense ready and waiting for the inevitability that's about to come I can't wait to hear your your statement. Um, so here's my thought. It starts off very promising. Gorgeous views, incredible, you know, Florida, Miami, whatnot. The cinematography is great throughout, um, which at times, I found, I'm sorry to say, is the only thing that reminds us we are watching a Michael Mann film. There's a lot of shots uh, right at the beginning centered around the male gaze. Um, and then to this is added a lot of gangster police jargon, which makes the narrative slightly difficult to follow at first. Uh, that's what I thought. The film is two hours and 20 minutes long. And <laughs> it feels it could have done without certain elements. Uh, and I'm going to go into details which these elements are. So I I, disag I disagree. I think it, I think it needs at least another hour. Oh my god! Oh, <laughs> oh come, on, come on! So the dialogue, okay? So the dialogue feels very clunky at times, and it kind of stops the narrative in its tracks. It, it makes me feel like I'm watching an early draft of a Michael Mann film, not a Michael Mann film. Um. I'm not sure if, if it's the dialogue at first for some really wooden performances or just the direction, the wooden performances in themselves, but it failed to pull me in. 
Um, the only thing I felt worked uh, was the chemistry between Colin Farrell um, and Lee Wong. Is that the name of the actress? Um, I do. Got, yeah, Lee Lee Gong or Gong Lee. Yeah, Lee Gong. Um, for me, I just felt that there was really no need of of any sex scenes between them two to make us believe that they were in love. They said with a look more than uh, Jamie Foxx and Naomi Harris did with their entire performances in this film. Um, I went and I had a bit of a, a research as to like details on the production of this film. Um, I wasn't surprised to find that there have been many script rewrites and it shows because it just it, it was quite choppy. It didn't sometimes it didn't make sense. Um, it didn't flow as a Michael Mann film would flow for me. I mean, I'm I'm not the biggest Michael Mann fan, but I loved his films, the ones I've seen. I've loved Heat. I loved um, um, I keep a uh, Heat, um, The Last of the Mohicans, um, even Collateral. Um, it was great. Um, it was great to see uh, Tom Cruise do something so different from from his usual vehicles. Um, with this, there was no chemistry or indication of camaraderie between Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx, which was my biggest disappointment. I understand that Jamie Foxx was a bit difficult on set after having just won an Oscar for Ray. To me, he looked distracted. His performance was very wooden. I've, I've never been a big fan of his, but this was all-time low. Um, he didn't have a good chemistry with Naomi Harris either, which says a lot because she's also quite good, um, this film aside. Um, I felt that Naomi Harris's storyline was slightly forced, trying to add balance to the other love story angle. Um, there was a lot of gratuitous nudity. Um, well, I must say that this comes after me watching a lot of 1930s films in which they only show, like, if, it, if they show a low-cut dress, they were considered positively indecent. Um, so the, the really, like, very graphic sex scenes made me feel a bit more, um, like, taken aback. Uh, and also it made me feel that they shoehorned it in for the ladies, just to add enough melodrama to make me think of Michael Curtiz, to be fair. Um, yeah, except that Curtis had his melodrama on point. The, with Miami Vice, I just feel that there's no balance between the melodrama and the action sequences. It just, it feels like they, they are part of different films. There are some noir elements, like you said before, um, which work um, independently of the rest of the film, but like taken independently, like the the sort of the scene where Naomi Harris's character is being saved, um, that works well. But that was just a standalone scene that didn't it didn't feel like it was part of the same film. It just didn't work for me. Um, the music was good throughout, um, minus the very occasional teenage beats, which I thought again took me out of the story altogether. Yeah, like what do you I mean said, by teenage beats? Is that is that the the score itself, or yeah, like there was the, there the, was the the, the, the uh, chosen song songs from the soundtrack? What some of the chosen songs from the soundtrack made me feel like I was it was something very much like the early two thousand MTV 
garage bands. Um, yeah, the, the most obvious example is some sort of cover song of In the Air Tonight that I was very, very, very taken aback and it just, it was, it didn't work for me at all. I thought, what was that doing there? So, um, overall, I did not enjoy this film, I'm sorry to say, but you expected it, uh, I'm sure. Um, it just, it just didn't, it didn't work for me. It, it tried to be at once boys will be boys and try to be blatant about it like you know it's a movie about undercover cops and sort of boys will be boys camaraderie guns lots of guns lots of drugs lots of danger um double crossing and and so on at the same time they has they had this two love stories stuck in the middle of everything which i felt didn't really work um and yeah, the cinematography was good, uh, the editing was lacking, uh, performances weren't very... The only two performances I really liked were Colin Farrell and Lee Gong. Over to you. It's interesting that you say that the um, there's this kind of almost two different films, the melodrama and, and then the more realistic action elements. Um, see, where I kind of fall, and, and you, you kind of have that as like, that. that's almost a negative um so for me like miami vice is this it does have this push and pull between uh power and and realism um so like the power is either like it's it's brought about by this one um these it's kind of portrayed and visualized in these wonderfully in the blue shots like the shots that are very very powerfully blue and these sensitive sequences or it kind of comes through in like the the crashing down of like the you know the gunfire um it's so like the the blue tinge i said it's about the blue of the film um it's almost like quite dreamlike um like it 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 has a texture which somehow feels more dreamy um in the digital uh format than when say man shot in film um for heat for example if you if you're drawing on, on a, a comparison there um so what i mean trying to trying to get out the, this the right way so da, 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 da. when it comes to the two main characters uh crockett and tubbs um colin farrell uh colin farrell's mustache and jamie fox um is that they both want to take their respective journeys to the limit uh, tubs with with the job itself crockett with isabella both of them they want to see how far that they can go um in that respect the throughout man's work uh the heroes and i'm at i literally am italicizing and putting in quotations of the, the word heroes um they get punished for dreaming of an escape for dreaming of the perfect ending um, in Thief, James Cannes, Frank, uh, he can't escape his work uh, to fulfill the dream that he carries in his pocket. Um, in Heat, uh, Neil McCauley, um, played by Robert De Niro, he can't fly away with Edie. Um, he has to go up and tie up that loose end with Raingrow. Uh, and then he dies at the hands of Al Pacino's Vincent Hanna. Um, in Public Enemies, uh, Dillinger is literally shot dead after his girlfriend tips off the FBI. Um, really only in, in his last his latest film when i say latest it came out five years ago now black cat does the hero 
Nicholas Hathaway, played by Chris Hemsworth, actually get away with death and get away, but at a cost because he can't go back to the normal real world. He's constantly on the run. Um, in Miami Vice, uh, Crockett, he can't have Isabella, um, played by Gong Lee. Um, like, he is so in deep with her that at one point, you know, Jamie Foxx asked, or Tubbs asked him, you know, it, which way can you see up? You know, do you know your way out of how far deep you're in? And it's quite, uh, I think that's a very, I really like that um, interaction there between the two. Um, for Tubbs, like Trudy, uh, Naomi Harris, she is quite violently stripped away from him um like the setup you know, i know maybe that those sequences of them two together don't quite work for you but they set up the the stakes of later on like that that that, that sequence in the trailer park wouldn't work without those those sequences previous with naomi harris and, and jamie fox um at home together um and like she is you know quite violently stripped away from him and but this is almost like this glimmer of hope at the end, you know, like the, she, her hand twitches almost. Um. Yes, um, I understand your point. Um, I only had a problem with the execution of this. I, I understand the ideas and they're very, very good. Uh, and you see them all uh, over and over in Michael Mann's Michael Mann's films and I do think that um, in all the other films he's done there was something genius about them and the way they were being executed and the way they were, they were, they were being presented to the audience but for instance the example that you just said about Naomi Harris's character being sort of violently taken away from Tubbs as soon as I saw them together in the house and having enjoying a, an intimate moment I it was it was I don't know why, but it was very obvious for me that she was going to be taken away from him in a violent way. But isn't isn't that then, I would argue, isn't that a carryover from its origins? Let's not forget that Miami Vice is indeed a, a big film adaptation of the 1980s TV drama, crime drama of the same name, like where you would watch an episode and you could literally telegraph what was going to happen before it happened i mean i would argue it's it's kind of structurally built like a like an episode of miami vice it's just done on a bigger scale um i've never seen naomi um naomi, miami vice so i couldn't tell you but to me it was just it felt like it didn't it didn't work um and there's a reason there's there's differences in scripts from t from a television episode to a film and i think that's one of the reasons this film didn't work because they tried to stick to the same structure which doesn't work on the big screen i don't feel and that's why i found the sort of the performances and some of the dialogue was a bit wooden and a bit jaded and a bit too um mundane for the big screen and i think they could have taken away some of it uh, and still had a good film in their on their hands uh, and maybe shorter <laughs> i mean i i want i do want to have a little caveat to what i'm saying um so when i i i do adore this film it's in you know i i put it in my top 10 films um my own personal top 10 films for me 
Um, but on first watch, when I first saw this, I wasn't sold. I mean, a bit like you, I, I saw this film as uh, almost a sketch of what a Michael Mann film is. Um, but however, um, I rewatched the film after I was blown away, as it were, by Black Hat in 2015. Um, I'm probably one of the very few people that actually saw that in the cinema. Um, after watching Black Hat, Miami Vice, after I rewatched uh, Miami Vice after after watching Black Hat in the cinema, it kind of just clicked. Um, so in, in my, man, Michael Mann has very much got two different eras. He's got his film era and then he's got his digital era. Um, so in, in, the, in his digital age between those, you know, he's got those certain sequences in, in Ali, which is sort of digital. You've got the raw nighttime and beautiful cinematography in Collateral. Um, and then you've got the the weird, uh, almost an anachronism of, of the way the film looks in, in Public Enemies. Um, my, Miami Vice feels like Michael Mann, is, he understands the, the format's limitations and strengths, which I felt he he then took to the next level with Black Hat. I mean, there, I mean, no, we're not talking about Black, Black Hat, but there are shots in Black Hat which are phenomenally beautiful um, and... I, I worth i mean i i i'm adding it to the list um <laughs> uh what's um when i when i talk about how it looks as well um i also mean like the, the texture of the film and uh, as well as the colors um so harmony corinne i found this quote from from harmony corinne who uh director of uh trash humpers and spring breakers and um, a film he did with Matthew McConaughey last year um, called uh, The Beach Bum. That was it. Um, after when he watched, uh, when he was being interviewed for Spring Breakers, uh, he said that he rewatched Miami Vice a lot when making that film. Um, so he said that, and I'm quoting here from from Harmony Corrine, uh The reason I love his movies and that movie in particular is I could feel the place. When I watch that film, I don't even pay attention to what they are saying or the storyline. I love the colours. I love the texture. And, I mean, and this is me, that's how I feel with Miami Vice. Like, over the course of the film, that blue gets deeper. It gets more unreal, more dreamlike. Only at the end, after that nighttime shootout sequence in, in the, the, the docks, as it were, um, does the film feel like the, it's come out of this dream state it's almost gone back into reality that the sequence at the end in the safe house where Colin Farrell says goodbye to Gong Li with Mogwai playing over over on the soundtrack the 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 dawn is it isn't stylized in any way it's it's purely shot as is um so that's how best for me to kind of give my defense of Miami Vice I feel um the plot, yes, it is a bit nonsensical. I mean, you you could telegraph what's going to happen before it happens. Um, I think John Ortiz is brilliant. It kind of eats up the scenery a little bit, um, and he's he's got this wonderful kind of viciousness to him. Um, and I mean, can we just talk about Colin Farrell's mustache for 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 a minute? And his and his haircut, it's yes. amazing. No, no, I actually made a note of it. I'm like, what is it with the tash? Why does he have to look like an '80s porn star? Why? Explain, please. Look, I can't explain the 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 choice behind making Colin Farrell look the way he does in Miami Vice. I <laughs> I freaking love it, and, it, and when he 
when he turns to Gong Li and says, I'm a fiend for mojitos. Um, I, you know, I just sat in the chair just cackling to myself because not only does that fantastic line, it's also being delivered with that amazing haircut, uh, moustache, and uh, is it like a cream suit he's got on? Um, it's it's quite it's quite something. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say that the early 2000s were not nice to weren't kind to uh, Colin Farrell's hair, haircut sort of styling. I just had another thought of um, Alexander and he had a very unfortunate haircut there as well. But you kind of expected there because it was supposed to be set in, in like 300 BC and it was yeah. But this I can't explain. I can't I can't understand it. I mean when you're playing when you're playing a, a, a drug to, you know narcotics detective in the miami police department and you kind of want to set yourself apart from say i don't know another film which was set with the miami miami police department narcotics force um cough bad boys cough cough um you want to set yourself apart from that 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 film i mean you can't do better than than what the way that colin farrell looks really um <laughs> So yeah, you alluded to um, the fact that Miami Vice had these behind-the-scenes issues. Um, I just want to have a quick, quick uh, side point on this. Um, so the ending itself got reworked um, due to Jamie Foxx uh, refusing to film outside the US um, because when they were shooting a sequence in the Dominican Republic, um, there was an actual shooting uh, near to where, near to where they were. Um, so Jamie Foxx, right, you know, was saying, "I'm not doing this." Um, which you can kind of argue wouldn't have happened. Michael Mann wouldn't have reworked the ending if um, Jamie Foxx hadn't had the star status he had at the time, what with his Oscar win for Ray. Um, there's this uh, article from Slate, which I will link to in the show notes, um, which also says that filming um, was postponed due to three hurricanes hitting uh, the location uh, one after the other. So hurricanes uh, Rita, Wilma and Hurricane Katrina. Uh, in in 2005 which in turn um, ballooned the budget for universal um which kind of leads me on to my next point that the film itself barely made back its budget worldwide um i feel that the reason this is is because of the combination of issues behind the fact that it was postponed the filming was postponed due to the hurricanes um that the budget you know ended up getting bigger and bigger and bigger which made it harder for for them to recoup um, I think it, the film was poorly marketed. Um, it kind of had this weird poster campaign of like one words accompanying Gong Li, Colin Farrell, and Jamie Fox in this in this blue and white uh, art, you know, artwork, and it, it kind of made the film seem um, a lot more. It, they try to sell the film as like cool but i don't think that's how they should have done it um since then the film has gained this cult like almost i wouldn't say cult like but it has this status among um I, I would say film twitter and other film critics um which i think is a testament to the fact that miami vice and other films and i'm putting black cat into this um deserve a second look um miami vice itself it deserves a second look. I mean, it isn't the TV show, um, and I think it's all the better for it. Um, one last thing before we move on to our 
next film um i just really curious to know your opinions on the cover of in the air tonight by new metal band nonpoint as a wonderfully um crafted homage to the fact that miami vice uh, the tv series had in the air tonight by phil collins played as they were driving their ferrari and you have a new metal version because it's 2005 it just took me right out of the film and I had to sort of take a break. Um, so, from one Michael to the other. Um, <laughs> I started thinking of, of Michael Mann as the Michael Curtiz of his generation, um, given the fact that they both sort of dabbled with noir and a bit of melodrama. And then I kind of started thinking more about the comparison and... Um, I do hope that Michael Mann does not have the skeleton in the skeletons in the closet that Michael Curtiz has. Um, a very dark and tragic story goes on that um, during the filming of Noah's Ark, which was 1928, a silent film. Um, during this uh, s filming of a flooding scene, um, three extras died okay and many more injured one of whom had his leg amputated due to injury uh the film was directed of course by michael curtis and when he was asked just before the filming of the flooding scene started um the cinematographer seeing how dangerous it was going to be for all the extras he came to curtis and asked him like what about these people um what will happen to them and Gutis just shrugged his shoulders and said, well, they just have to take their chances, won't they? That's insane. That's like, that's almost on like, that's almost on the same level as like, I don't know, Matt, uh, John Landis in, in the Twilight Zone movie in terms of irresponsibility. And, and yet, I mean, obviously like the 1920s and 30s were different time in Hollywood, but then he yeah. still had a film yeah. career. And he still directed loads of films. Yes. That's yes, insane. So, <laughs> so basically, yeah, he had blood on his hands. He was basically complicit to murder uh, because he didn't actually tell the extras what was going to happen, that the whole set would be flooded. So three people died. Uh, this was 1928, okay? So basically, he had a very, very successful career after that, making films like... Angels with the Dirty Faces, um, Mildred Pierce, um, you name it. Um, and, uh, Casablanca is the big one. Yes, I forgot about that one. Oh, who, who never watches that anymore. Let's <laughs> uh, let's not talk about Casablanca. It's not worth it. Well, we can we, I'm definitely going to put that on the list at some point. Um, I I have seen Casablanca. Oh, so. damn it! So, uh, quick question for you: Do you know who was an extra on that said who didn't drown? I no, I, I I'm no, I don't. John Wayne. Really? Yes. He was a, oh, he wow. was a youngster in nineteen twenty eight and he was an extra. And he didn't drown. Obviously. <laughs> obviously. Yes, uh so Nick, what did you think of Angels with Dirty Faces? I mean, that's a bit of an introduction really to Michael Curtiz. I mean I <laughs> I'm not really, I'm not familiar with his work, really. Um, I mean, of course, I've seen Casablanca. Um, 
I've seen Mildred Pierce. Um, so this is my third uh, Michael Curtiz film. Um, although at some point I do want to catch some of his others. Um, there are a few uh, film critics that I follow that do talk about Curtiz in high regard in terms of the fact that he isn't he doesn't have this following like his peers so uh, people like uh, John Ford for example um, and I think from what I can gather it's because he's more of a journeyman director um, so yeah like Michael Curtiz is general like this is my third Curtiz film and it was interesting to see him take on another genre um, you know after Casablanca and Mildred Pierce um, as well as this being an early introduction uh, for me for Curtiz this is also my first introduction to James Cagney excuse um, me You've this never... is my first no this is my first James Cagney film and um, I do hang my head in shame. And it's kind of the whole point of this podcast, really, to hang my head in shame, the fact that I haven't seen a James Cagney film. And I'm I'm just going to give a little spoiler alert to events to come in uh, future episodes. But there will be an episode where I make Danny hang her head in shame. Um, <laughs> you can try. I have heard of James Cagney. Of course, I've heard of James Cagney. I've just never seen any of his films before. Um, so this 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 is the first. Um, doing some background reading on this, um, it kind of occurred to me that apparently this performance and this character kind of subverted what audiences were to expect from Cagney. Um, so the way I kind of went into the film was that the side characters of the Dead End Kids, which are uh, exhausting, um, they look up to Rocky's every move and are almost kind of they are the the audience surrogate so when when that ending happens you know it's kind of how the audience is meant to feel uh, that's how i kind of got with that um i don't want to talk about the, the the ending sequence just yet um i just got a few other things uh, to say uh, the first is that it's really interesting to see um humphrey bogart in a, a, a relatively early role am i right in thinking yeah, um, I have a few notes on that later on as well. Um, okay. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting to see Humphrey Bogart. Um, he's kind of, he looks weak, uh, meek, uh, scared, snivelly. Um, in, in Casablanca, he's like this epitome of cool. Um, or in, like, he is the metaphorical calm-headed driver of a runaway train in Maltese Falcon and, and The Big Sleep. Um, but this performance very much links up to the one I saw in uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre, um, where he is a villainous character. But there, where in, in Treasure, um, he is like kind of gradually corrupted. Um, here he is like a straight out conniving, underhanded uh, solicitor. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it was really that was really interesting to me. Um, uh, you you got some thoughts on on Bogart? Yes, um, yes, I do. So basically, uh, you will notice as, as the film starts, Bogart gets third billing. Here it's it's 1938. He was on the cusp of superstardom and glory, but he was stuck for a few years. Um, this was mostly because Warner Brothers didn't actually know what to do with him. 
and uh, he hadn't actually gained that superstardom persona that you just described of the super suave and super super in control of himself. Um, but you know, um, he did before before doing uh, John Houston uh, with John Houston, uh, the Maltese Falcon. That that was his basically his first big break. Um, and then Cortez again brought him to Casablanca and the rest, like, you know, it's history. What I found quite interesting is like Bogart died very early on. He died in 1956 and this was 1938 and he wasn't even that big of a name. So he had just over 20 years of acting in, fil in films. Uh, but dirty, yeah, it was just very, very con concentrated. So you, you speak about um, Treasures of the Sierra Madre. And I, I have to disagree with you on that because he's not the bad guy he's not he i think the whole film is around the descent into madness into into um greed and and sort of what the effect of money has on people uh he's just a victim from the beginning to end he just descends into madness in front of our very eyes but what a performance that is and it was for me that is my favorite bogart film of all time the treasure of sierra madre because you see him so human and so even though he tries to be in control, he doesn't. He doesn't help know how to. But we will talk about. That's what I mean. I. I. I yeah. I mean, we, we can. I just want to say that with what my point on on his character in 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 Sierra Madre, like you say that he was a victim. I kind of disagree in that he starts off as knowing exactly what he's getting into. And then he gets gradually corrupted by the situation and by what money does to men, basically. Um, and I, I don't see Bo, I don't see his character in in Sierra Madre as as a victim so much as someone who is corrupted and kind of gets what they deserve, as it were. But we can talk about Sierra Madre for for hours on end. Yes, I'm sure, but this yes, is of course. About yeah, this is about Angels with Dirty Faces, yes. um, and of the the star of Angels with Dirty Faces isn't actually Humphrey Bogart. Um, it's James Cagney, uh, co-billed with uh, Pat O'Brien. Yes, so Angels with Dirty Faces was the first of three films Bogart made with James Cagney, uh, and there's always been this sort of kind of dispute between him and uh, and Cagney for the number one spot in the hearts of like film going Americans because they were had a similar persona throughout the years. It's like Beatles versus the Rolling Stones, the Chaplin versus Keaton of the gangster films. Uh, except that Cagney did not only gangster films, um, he also did westerns and also musicals. Cagney was a very talented dancer and he was he was super incredible. Um, another slight interesting comparison between Cagney and um, Bogart was their background. So Cagney was very street smart. He grew up in in um, New York, but in one of those um, Bronx or Brooklyn, I don't know which one. Um, and he came from a big family, uh, very poor people, so very working class, and he was street smart. Some of the mannerisms that you see in his performance of Rocky, uh, he took from friends and gangsters that he knew personally. So that, that thing where, what do you hear, what do you say, is basically taken from a from a friend of his that he knew personally, uh, whereas Bogart was from a very very middle class family. His father was a doctor, and they had they had quite a quite a um, um, comfortable upbringing. Um, and uh, a small a small anecdote on on the um, the the um, 
angels they see in the film the group of uh, the gang of the boys they were quite rowdy on set and they basically picked on Bogart quite a few times uh, and the, Cagney being street smart he had to step in and be himself and just basically shut them up um, uh, which they listened because as, as you see the film you realize that Cagney is basically playing playing part of himself because he is so confident and he knows how to win a room uh, and how to sort of work his way through. Yeah, I, I don't have anything to add to that. You pretty much hit the nail on the head with everything I wanted to say about James Cagney. Um, in terms of theatre, this is my first impression of him and you pretty much hit the nail on the head, really. Um, I thought um, with with uh, Cagney and uh, Pat O'Brien is that the whole film is kind of hinged on this friendship between the two and it wouldn't work if they have no chemistry and thank god that they did um i mean you can really see that they have genuine chemistry between the two like you can tell that they are old friends um that there's no fakery in it like they genuinely like each other you know as characters and as actors um the film that i felt that was most powerful was um was when Connolly warns Rocky of him going to the press um, and it just basically they, they turn to each other as there's no hard feelings you know um, Rocky knows that it's just his old friend doing what he has to do which is the right thing um, Rocky knows you can see it in, in Cagney's performance that he knows that he's gonna get probably get dragged down by it and get punished for it but there, there's no there's no hard feelings it's it's purely acceptance and that that sequence wouldn't work in i don't think that sequence would work in other films there would be you know drama and and you know handbags because between the two characters because one doesn't want the other to do the other thing but in here it's like this this acceptance between the two and it really it really works and it really really sells the friendship um and because of that sequence when you have that final scene um like it really hits home as it were um so like that final sequence on pat o'brien's father Connolly is this moral center um you know he, he he's there as he's there as this the shoulder to cry on but also as the person that says you know you have to go out how you should be going out for the sake of the other you know for the kids um mm -hmm. and the the execution scene i mean it's it's surprisingly brutal and unflinching like um i mean cagney and curtis i mean with with a simple silhouette and and line deliveries i mean it really sells it i mean it's really bleak um and it's it's quite a, a nasty a nasty way to go um and it's i mean for me it's there to be meant to be there to you know to punish rocky um and to warn the kids of his actions did you see it coming? What him him dying at the end? Um, I didn't think he was gonna go by execution. I thought he was gonna go by, you know, getting murdered or something, or one of the kids. I don't know. I, I maybe it's just me being brought up on on like Martin Scorsese crime films, but like I was half expecting one of the kids to turn around and kill him for for not for being cowardly or something i was expecting like a really horrible ending but it didn't go down that route and it was surprised it was surprising to see 
Like every now and then I would watch a film that I hadn't seen before and I would instantly recognize it because I had seen it before in other things. Um, and I'd seen examples of that final sequence and of pretty much the themes of the entire film in other things. And it's really inter- it's really good to see like the origin of that. Um, I do. I just got a couple other things to to say really on the film. Um, I felt that the character of uh, Laurie, uh, played by Anne Sheridan, um, was kind of like a missed opportunity. Um, uh, like it was a promising, p- promising character in terms of where they could have gone with it. Um, but then it just kind of felt like an afterthought. Um, in one scene, like she kind of pleads with Father Connolly, you know, to spare Rocky from his expose, but the. the it it just seems really desperate and it, there doesn't seem to be any substance to it and it she almost just sees seems like an afterthought which is really unfortunate given how she's meant to be portrayed at the start of the film it, it kind of just doesn't go anywhere um i wasn't yeah i wasn't really really sold on that yeah um i i, I kind of agree with you on that one because um basically someone with with the strength and sort of persona, like such a strong um, character like Rocky, needs someone equally strong, and Angela's performance didn't stand up. Um, I think Curtis would have done better to sort of pair him up with someone like John Blondell, for instance, who is who is uh, as street smart and as energetic a performer as El Cagney. And there have been lots of other films that they. Uh, worked together in and they were very very well paired and I can I can recommend quite a lot of, of similar films some of them are from the pre-code era of course uh, but like you said um, with the ending uh, it had to it had to be like that it had to happen that the police and the, the sort of the institution would would finally catch him and and punish him because the message of crime doesn't pay had to be sort of stuck in there and just be be sort of very blatantly um illustrated due to the fact that up until like up until this last last act you see rocky in his all like glory um um being being the outlaw and being being the um like all the doing all the things that you one shouldn't do and and being sort of um glamorized so to speak. So they had they had to come, he had to be punished at the end to to teach the kids watching in 1938 a lesson about how crime doesn't pay. Um, but yeah, it's yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting that you say that you know the crime doesn't pay thing. I mean, it. I think that's probably one of the link you know links with the point. One of the points that I made when we spoke about my advice is that um, in. In, I spoke about how, like, in Michael Mann's crime films, um, you know, he, he punishes his heroes. You know, they can't have the happy endings that they want. Um, and in Angels and Dirty Faces, you know, it does this yeah. also. Um, and it's done with the same amount of emotion. And I would say is, like, the Neil Macaulay's death in Heat. Yeah. Like, when when Pacino guns him down, like, the it with the... The amazing score and and the on the the airfield with the plane and the lights you know it, it's got this very emotional thing and like al pacino uh, vincent hanno he, he feels almost guilty for gunning him down um and you kind of have that almost i wouldn't say the same emotion of guilt but you have this kind of 
you feel sorry for for Rocky for, for yeah. going the way he did, but felt that it was the right thing to do, purely for the kids, uh, those dead end kids. Um, I really don't want to talk about them because I I don't I don't want to ruin the positive things I had to say about Angels with Dirty Faces. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna leave I'm gonna leave it there. Okay. Um. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. I. I. Honestly, in all in all honesty, I Angels of Dirty Faces. I mean, I was very 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 impressed with it. Um. The the themes and storyline, the characters, the ones that I've highlighted anyway, and of the, those two sequences I spoke of. Um. Especially that final sequence. Um. It deserves to be watched purely for that final sequence and the way it was shot. Um, yeah, um, yeah, I have a few other um, a notes on, on this. Um, mostly comparing um, Angels with Dirty Faces with Miami Vice and, and what I thought of, of them. Seeing, seeing Angels with Dirty Faces again in the context of, of the same sort of situation where, which we've seen in Miami Vice. Um, so what stood out for me this time was like some of the themes of crime double crossing, um, perhaps camaraderie, like you said, between father William uh, Pat O'Brien and James Cagney and uh, and their respective characters. And I believe I'm not wrong in saying that uh, James Cagney and Pat O'Brien in real life were really, really lo lifelong friends. Uh, and I think you've, you've pointed that out when you say that the chemistry worked and I think it worked because they were friends in, in real life. Um, but yeah, just seeing in the context of a film like Miami Vice, the, the story of Rocky feels like a background story of one of the gangsters that we see in Miami Vice. Perhaps the character played by, by Isabella, played by um, Le Gong, where you think that you ha in Miami Vice you get a bit of a uh, background story on her, but only just. Um, you kind of see that she had to sort of fend for herself her whole life and sort of she had to work um towards the top of, of the crime uh, scene just because she had uh sort of um a sort of bad back background and she didn't have enough opportunities so you kind of see that sort of parallel between rocky and and isabella um the interesting story is that both films start with somewhat like bustling and busy street scenes, perhaps showcasing that all, all the characters we're about to see are very street smart or raised on the street. Um, you can see that the gangster world in Angels with Dirty Faces looks a bit too glamorous to be taken seriously, uh, with everyone wearing three-piece suits and tuxedos all the time. Yeah, I, I would like to buy James Cagney's suit somewhere. <laughs> I really would. I, I, would, I, would I, like to, I would like to see if I could pull that off. Um, but then but then i don't know what that says about me because i would pretty much i i would love to be able to pull off conor Farrell's hair and mustache and outfits that he does you have to pick one uh, i, I mean if i one. if i'm picking between james cagney's suit and stuff in angel's dirty faces with conor Farrell's mustache i'm definitely going to go for conor Farrell's mustache um oh dear okay um well, for me, everything looks better when there's a shootout and the man corner is wearing a tuxedo. I don't know, that's just me. Um, another reminder that this is basically a Warner Brothers product and it was considered as the working man studio. Um, the Warner Brothers films had always had a, a gritty realism stamp on them. 
So you see the world in ages with dirty faces is a world of vice, like I said, double crossing, backstabbing, doggy dog, doggy dog, every man for himself. But at the same time, there's a sliver of humanity and hope, and it's embodied by Father Jerry, who never gives up on his childhood pal. Um, although he might have saved his soul, he can't really save his earthly body. Uh, so like I said, the good must always triumph and wrongdoing must be punished. Um, yeah, so uh, to me, the characters in Mammy Rise didn't feel real, be like too believable. And despite the, the glamour showed by um, Rocky, just I believed him. Um, I believed his sort of trying to be good, but also getting into mischief. Um, he was not really a bad seed, he was just a product of his own environment. Um, and like you said, the, the dynamic between Rocky and Jerry, just it, it made me feel, feel like there was more genuine camaraderie between them than what we've seen in Miami Vice. Um, like you said, yeah, Pat, Jerry and Rocky are both the same, different sides of the law, unlike the other two, which are part of the same team. But I think that's what makes the relationships more, more interesting. Um, I also like how Gutti's toy with the concept of like one man against the world and all the all the mischief that the character of Rocky managed to do being by himself, and he managed to sort of topple over all the all the men ab above him, all the gangster and the Bo Bogart's character. Uh, and I, I believe that nobody else could but Cagney could have pulled that level of swagger and confidence. Um, and another one thing I would like to finish with is how in Miami Vice there's only the holy institution of the police that wins the day, while in the gangsters, the gangster angels with dirty faces are not afraid of the police, but they're afraid of the media and the priesthood, so they're afraid of what happens in the, um, in the papers, what is written in the papers, and also uh, if you remember that Father Jerry goes to the, to the radio and he starts broadcasting on the radio. Um, I won't say religion, I won't say priesthood, because I think the holiness is, isn't as much expressed as implied. Uh, the priest doesn't really want to make sense of the angels with dirty faces, or of Rocky. He just, he just wants them to understand that a life of crime isn't worth living. Um, and the last shot of the film of, of the angels, the boys climbing up the stairs from the dirty rat infested basement up into the real world where there's hard work but which pays off in the end I suppose or so we're told um, I thought that was quite iconic as well uh, especially um, given that it showed that after Rocky died he he yeah he went to the chair yellow but at the same time he saved the kids from from a life of crime um, so yeah not that I not that I actually care about what happens to the kids, but uh, it's good to know that it's good to know that Cagney died for a good cause. <laughs> you didn't like the kids, did you? I I really don't want to get into it, but they I mean they were when they started talking. I was like, I really hope that they're not in the a lot of the film. And then they turned out to be in it for a lot of the film. It, yeah. Um, and then I find out that they made whole films based around these group of kids. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I mean, 
the 1930s Hollywood, you know, studio system. I mean, uh, it's got a lot to be desired if that happens. Um, but we can get into that another time, honestly. Um, so yeah, um, that's pretty much all I'm done with uh, talking about with Angel State Faces on my advice. Uh, unless uh, Danny has anything left to say. No, I'm good. Thank you. Nope. Nope. All good. Um, so we are going from slapstick comedy of Buster Keaton and Jackass uh, to noir of Miami Vice and Angels of Dirty Faces to next week we will be talking about musicals um, we will be talking about the 1961 film West Side Story which I have never seen and we will be looking at the wonderfully bonkers Tokyo Tribe from 2014 directed by Japanese Author, if that's the right word for him, Sion Sono. Um, and I cannot wait to talk about Sion Sono with Danny, and I cannot wait for her to watch Tokyo Tribe. Um, so that'll be next week. Uh, so, Danny, where can we find you on the internet? So, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Kino Joan, and my website is kinojoan.co.uk. You can find me on Twitter at Nick S. Chandler and on my website, superatomovision.com. Um, you can email us um, at kinotomic at gmail.com. Please rate us, review us on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, whatever you're listening on, um, just give us a rate and a review. It'll really help us get this out there for a wider audience. Um, so thank you very much for listening this, this week. Thank you. See you next time.